Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome to Radiotherapy. I'm Dr. Kit Kat. With me in the studio, we've got Nurse EpiPen um, and Rachel on the buttons. For those who are regular listeners, um, Nick will be back shortly. In a month. In a month. We'll be filling in for him today. Um, having lots of fun. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> how are you feeling, Nurse EpiPen? I'm good. I had a nice ride in, but I think I was riding through a cloud because it was misty, ah, but I checked yes. the bomb. Yes. And it said no rain, but it was a bit misty. So still got a little bit wet. Still got a smidge, okay. smidge, yeah. but it was and then the sun came out. Yeah, that's Melbourne for you. <laughs> <laughs> Cross the river and the whole weather changes or an hour later. Yeah, an hour later. Completely different. All right. Well, I'm really looking forward to today's show where um covering a lot of I guess the theme is mental health and brain kind of topics and we've got a range of fantastic guests. Um, We'll be chatting to Ben Farinazzo who will be joining us on the phone and he has personal experience with PTSD and he's also an ambassador for the Australian Kookaburra Kids Foundation which he'll be telling us all about. Later on uh, we'll be joined by Dr Matt Kang and he's actually in the studio with us this morning and Matt will be telling us about a new blood test for Alzheimer's, dementia and cognitive injuries. Morning Matt. Morning Matt. Yeah, Good welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, I think this is a, that's a really nice kind of um, for people who listened to our show a fortnight ago when we did t- speak about dementia. It'll be a nice continuity of topic there. Indeed. Nice follow-up. Yes, yes. But first up, we have um, Dr Tony Pacus, who will be joining us over the phone. Um, and Dr Tony is a, an accomplished clinical psychologist, researcher and public speaker. She has a PhD in the intersection of cosmetic procedures, mental health, body dysmorphic disorder or BDD and patient satisfaction. Um, Tony is a postdoctoral research fellow at Swinburne University and also a practicing clinical psychologist in Melbourne, specialising in BDD and psychological evaluations for patients undergoing cosmetic surgery and non-surgical procedures. Tony is um, a very sought-after speaker and educator, being invited to many national and international conferences to present on BDD and the intersection of psychology and cosmetic procedures. Dr Pacuse has been involved in advocacy and consulting work to increase um, psychological safety in the cosmetic industry through her research and consulting with large companies such as Merce Aesthetics and Allergan, Allergan? Allergan. Allergan Aesthetics, thanks, Nurse um, among others. She was also invited as a psychological consult in the new ARPA review to patient safety in the Australian cosmetic industry. Through a social media profile, so at the BDD Therapist on Instagram, Tony aims to increase public awareness around BDD and the psychological aspects of cosmetic procedures. A very impressive resume and someone I was very fortunate enough to study with. And actually, I don't think I've ever told... Um, Tony this but someone I looked up to very much in my honours studying when I was studying at Swinburne. Nice. So I'm very excited to have her join us on the show. Welcome Tony, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, that was such a nice welcome. Lovely to be here. Oh excellent, well it's just I'm so excited to um, chat with you this morning, Um, I guess because there have been some very recent changes um, in some guidelines that have been published but before we do jump into that can you tell us um, a little bit about how you got to be where you are today? Yeah, I think I feel very lucky in that I kind of just fell into this topic, to be honest. I, after doing my honours with Professor Susan Russell at Swinburne, she's been working in the, the BDD space for probably the last 25 years. And so I went on to do my PhD with her and she was like, let's think about a topic around BDD. And then the more I started reading about it, pretty much every paper you read on BDD, something comes up about cosmetic procedures and the problem with people with body dysmorphic disorder, which is where they fixate on a perceived defect in their appearance, something that feels very real to them but others can't necessarily see. There's a common problem that people with BDD will seek 
cosmetic procedures and physical fixes rather than getting psychological support. And the more I started reading into that, the more I was like, wow, we need to be doing more work around this because it's been well known for a long time, but we haven't come up with a solution um, or a way to, to fix the problem. So that's really what got me into it. Excuse me, Tony. Um, can I just ask, for example, what are some of the body dysmorphic disorder symptoms or what, what are we talking about here? Yeah, of course. So, so BDD is quite a prevalent condition. It's in around 3% of the general population. And essentially it involves someone fixating on a perceived flaw in their appearance. So, you know, commonly it would be something like the nose or the skin, feeling like their nose is too big or their skin is wrinkly or has lots of scars or spots or pimples. And usually these are things that either are completely non-existent or they're very subtle, um, but to them they feel very real, very distressing. And so often they'll engage in lots of behaviours to try to check their appearance, so spending lots of time in the mirror, looking at their skin or their face from lots of different angles, um, or they'll spend time covering it up, like with lots of makeup or skincare products, or trying to get cosmetic treatments to address the concern or surgery to fix it. Um, and a lot of the time, people will start to avoid social situations or going to work, or in extreme cases, even leaving the house altogether because they feel so self conscious of their appearance. Yeah, it sounds like a very time consuming and also expensive um, mental health condition if there's a lot of cosmetic procedures okay. being sought after you mentioned it's quite a common disorder can you tell us or do you know approximately how common it is yeah so in the general population estimates are around 2.4 to 3 percent um, but in cosmetic settings that that rate goes way up so in cosmetic surgery and non-surgical settings they estimate around 20 percent of people have body dysmorphic disorder Oh, okay. That sounds, yeah, that sounds like a lot. And that's a very, um, I guess that's a nice little segue into talking about how, um, well, what that kind of means at the moment and the changes that have been made recently regarding the guidelines about seeking cosmetic procedures. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on there? Yeah, it's really timely that we're talking about it this weekend because yep. the new guidelines came into effect just yesterday, actually. Um, but it's been the culmination of probably a year and a half worth of work because it started with some media exposés about some bad practices going mm -hmm. on in the cosmetic industry um, and, yeah, a lack of care for patient safety, essentially, that then prompted this massive review and overhaul of cosmetic surgery in particular. It wasn't actually focused on non-surgical procedures. And so through that, APRA, the Health Practitioners Regulation Association, did a, a whole review with um, public consultations and consultations from people working in the field, essentially trying to work out what changes need to happen to ensure patient safety. And then they updated these guidelines for cosmetic practitioners. And so when it comes to body dysmorphic disorder, it was something that was already implied in the old medical board guidelines for people doing cosmetic surgery. So cosmetic surgeons were always told that they had to assess their patient's suitability for treatment. Mm -hmm. But now with the new guidelines, they've actually updated and strengthened this wording to say rather than the, the practitioner should assess patient suitability, they said the practitioner must assess the yeah. patient for underlying psychological conditions like body dysmorphic disorder. And so they've actually specified BDD in the guidelines, which wasn't there before. And also recommend using a validated screening tool to actually assess for BDD rather than just relying on clinical intuition. So um, EpiPen here. Um, just clarify for us, please. I thought on the 1st of July it was the plastic surgeons can now do some of these operations. And when people have BDD and they want to have something done, who are they going to see? Or are they getting a referral to see a plastic surgeon and not these cowboy cosmetic surgeons that they used, that they used to be? Yeah, so the review had implications much more broadly than just for plastic surgeons. So they didn't actually move to regulate surgery 
only by plastic surgeons. So cosmetic surgeons can still do surgery, but they need to get an endorsement in it. So that was one of the changes that came out of the review. Great, thanks. So essentially, this applies to all medical practitioners, plastic surgeons, cosmetic surgeons, and also people who do non-surgical procedures like Botox and fillers also come under these new guidelines. Wow, yeah, yeah, that's good. Quite extensive. And so, yeah, if someone um, presents or, you know, gets a referral to see a plastic or a cosmetic surgeon um, and they perhaps do a screening test and it perhaps indicates maybe psychologically that there's some indications of BDD, what, what's the process then? Mm-hmm. So if the screening indicates they might have BDD, then they're expected to refer them on for further psychological assessment. Right by a psychologist, psychiatrist, or a general practitioner who works independently of the surgeon or the doctor um, Mm -hmm. who's going to do the cosmetic treatment. And then from there, it's the role of that independent person to conduct a comprehensive assessment and determine essentially how risky it would be to go ahead with the procedure for that individual and how prepared that person is to go ahead with the procedure. So for someone with BDD, you really want to know that Um, They have a clear understanding of the risks and the benefits of the procedure. And we know from the research that the vast majority of people with BDD, unfortunately, are not satisfied with cosmetic treatment outcomes. Or they might be for a short term and then that satisfaction wears off because essentially, you know, they're addressing a psychological issue with a physical Mm -hmm. fix. Um, And so often that's an important conversation that has to happen during that evaluation that people really understand what's going on for them and understand their body dysmorphia and how that could impact their cosmetic treatment results as well. Yeah, and is there, um, once they get referred to psychological therapy, is that, um, you know, the assessment and if they engage in therapy, are there successful outcomes? Yeah, I think definitely it, it helps to make people feel more prepared. I'm not aware of any good research evidence behind it because I think it's a tricky kind of ethical area Mm. where, you know, someone who might not be suitable for cosmetic surgery going ahead with getting the cosmetic surgery, it's it's kind of hard to assess. Um, But I think, you know, anecdotally from what I see, you know, patients who do go ahead with the surgery after having these assessments definitely feel more prepared and in a better headspace than it is supposed to increase their satisfaction with the treatment. Um, at least they go into it really knowing what what to expect. And the other thing is you would often recommend some support before getting the surgery or the procedure and afterwards to help them. And does sometimes um, the psychological therapy, does that deter or not deter, but kind of in some ways resolve some of the BDD symptoms Mm. and then perhaps patients then don't go and seek the surgery in, in the end? Yeah, definitely. I've worked with patients from who have all sorts of reactions to it. So I, I've had some patients who, you know, through finding out they actually have body dysmorphic disorder mm. and doing some psychological therapy, realised that you know they ne- they would actually never be happy with the results of sure. cosmetic surgery and decide not to get it. Yeah. Um, and then there are other people who, you know, they they do a good course of therapy. They might develop a more realistic perception of what's going on for them, but at the end of that process, still really feel like they want to do it and they want to give it a go and usually then they can do that in a better position rather yeah. than you know before any treatment fantastic um epipen again here um just okay. can you please give us a few more examples of um body dysmorphic disorder so are we talking anorexia apart from little blemishes and things uh, dis, um, anorexia or people with enlarged la- women with enlarged labia or is it is is it as narrow as what you described before or is it much more encompassing yeah so so with BDD the fixation can be on any part of the body um, it is most commonly on facial features and the skin and genitals Um, So labia certainly could be part of that. It is different from eating disorders, though. So BDD and eating disorders are not the same thing. Essentially, if someone has an active eating disorder and their main concern about their body is weight and shape and they're engaging in disordered eating or exercise, they would be diagnosed with an eating disorder rather than body dysmorphic disorder. So having an eating disorder is actually an exclusion for BDD unless they were also worried about their nose or their hair or their skin or other things that aren't related to the size or shape of their body. But it is quite 
similar in the sense that in both something like anorexia and body dysmorphic disorder, there is this distorted perception of what they look like. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's where there's a bit of overlap there. Thank but you. it can, it, yeah, it can focus on any part of the body. Yeah. Well, um, Dr. Tony, I have thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you this morning and um, I guess we, we might just have to wrap up our interview here and I think, yeah, it's been fascinating and fantastic. we've got yeah. a chock-a-block program. We do have a chock-a-block program. Yeah. But before we let you go, Tony, can you tell us where we can find, uh, well, yeah, people can find out more, perhaps even your own profiles and websites? Absolutely. So I think you mentioned at the start on Instagram, I do post a lot about body dysmorphic disorder and the new guidelines, which is at the BDB therapist on Instagram. Um, but you can also go to my website, which is readymind.com.au. And at ReadyMind, I've been working on developing training and consultation tools and screening tools for cosmetic practitioners to better understand the psychology of their patients. And we also do assessments for patients who want to undergo cosmetic procedures. So that's readymind.com.au. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much, Tony, and thank you for taking some time out on your Sunday morning to have a chat with us. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. 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 Well, well, that was incredibly interesting. <laughs> no, I really learned yeah. quite a bit then. Yeah. I didn't understand that the the BDD body dysmorphic Dys- disorder has got quite a uh, um, a clear definition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, very, and also a lot of overlap with yes. obsessive compulsive disorder as yes. well. From my yes. very limited understanding, I guess. Um, but we do have a chocolate box show, so we might have to jump now to some sponsor announcements before we um, chat to our next guest. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. We are, I guess, continuing our fantastic show about mental health and kind of brain disorders as well. So we just heard previously from Dr. Tony Pukus talking about body dysmorphic disorder and the new changes that have been made um, in the APRA guidelines for cosmetic and plastic surgeons. But now we're kind of shifting focus and focusing um, and hearing a little bit about post-traumatic stress disorder from Ben Farinazzo. And so Ben is an ambassador and passionate advocate for mental health and veterans. As a father, as well as a person with a personal experience with PTSD, Ben is also an ambassador for the Australian Kookaburra Kids Foundation and is passionate about children impacted by family mental health and getting the help they need. Ben continues to serve by raising awareness and support for public and charitable organisations that help those in need in the community. And his story has touched thousands of people. He shares his experience in a way that's raw and vulnerable, yet displays strength, courage and hope. And we'd like to welcome Ben now to the studio, joining us via the phone. Hi, Ben. Good morning. Good morning. Great to join you. <laughs> Thanks for um, jumping on the phones this morning. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you a little bit about um, the Kookaburra kids and also post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, that's being a very, I guess, uh, strong interest and passionate interest of mine, um, especially as a psychologist. Um, yeah, right. So can you tell us and tell the listeners a little bit more about post-traumatic stress disorder? Yeah, post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, as people call it, is like a feeling of intense fear, mm-hmm. helplessness or horror that uh, people experience after a traumatic event. And that might be something like a car accident, yep. an assault, uh, natural disaster, uh, or, you know, we're hearing military people going to war or warlike operations. Yeah, so you mentioned there's an intense fear. Yeah. So is that a... T- so, in- I'm sorry, go on. Yeah, so an intense fear. So, for example, they've uh, experienced uh, a traumatic event and then uh, following the traumatic event, then they'll still relive that sort of experience Mm. and try to avoid any associations to do with that experience. If it's a car accident, they might avoid that particular area every time they're driving around town in the future, or they might even uh, avoid getting in the car. Uh, in the military, uh, it might be trying to avoid any sort of information that links their, where they are now to that previous experience. Wow. So, yeah, there's the civilian and military people can experience this disorder. And it sounds like, you know, for example, you mentioned the getting um, a car accident that can and avoiding a car or avoiding certain parts of town. That sounds like it can have quite 
quite an impact on people's lives. Oh, absolutely. Um, and as I've been telling a few people this week, it's just not that individual themselves, but it impacts yeah. everyone around them, yeah. their family, their loved ones. It has this ripple effect. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it can cause, you know, quite a significant consequence to those around you that you love. Yeah. Um, EpiPen here, Ben. How have you treated your PS, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder? How have you helped yeah, yourself? Yeah, the PTSD, uh, look, not very well initially. I, uh, I came back from operations in the Army back in uh, 2000, and my wife knew that something wasn't quite right. I was really quite distant and detached um, and waking up uh, from nightmares and mm. crying on the side of the bed before going to work. And I sought a bit of a bit of help, got some bad advice, and just decided, ah, oh, well, that's just part and parcel of readjusting back to life. And I didn't get formally diagnosed until about ten years later. Wow. Um, yeah, don't do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, get the help you need. But in those days, the national conversation about mental health was, was much different to what it yeah. was today. And really, uh, that was the first major deployment of Australian troops since the Vietnam War. So, you know, how could it happen? You know, often people would say, well, you didn't go to Vietnam. You know, what's wrong with you? Mm. Um, And I thought to myself, yeah, what is wrong with me? I don't know. Um, But I eventually got some tremendous help. Um, Fortunately, I saw a, a doctor who had experience in mental health and actually had been in the military herself. Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, oh, so lucky, and she picked up on it. Um, and then I, I went through counselling, uh, a lot of counselling. I ended up having to get a bit of going into medication to help me get through that counselling mm-hmm. um, and, and to stabilise my emotions moving forward. But then we needed to get support for the family yeah. as well. Um because during that 10 years I was undiagnosed, we had three children. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it impacted everyone. Yeah, you mentioned earlier the ripple um, effects that mental health can have on the, the immediate family and, I guess, the wider community as well. Can you tell us a little bit how PTSD can affect the loved ones of people living with the condition? Yeah, I think particularly the uh, behaviours that people have, and they're all different for people. I mean, yeah. for me... Um, I mean, I'm no expert on it. I'm uh, still trying to work my own stuff out. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I mean, I, I would just go from one moment to this thing, normal, happy, dad, then all of a sudden I'd get really agitated and angry, um, often as a result of noise. Mm. Um, so the TV playing to it, they have the dog start barking, the kids running around being normal kids, and then all of a sudden I'd find myself just starting to flip out. Um or I'd then totally disconnect from the family and I'd just sit out in the backyard yep. by myself behind the shed for, for the day. Um, and I think that would be quite, was quite confusing to the kids. In fact, mm. they probably just saw it as a normal dad at the time, but it wasn't until I was diagnosed that we sat down with the kids and explained to them what was going on and they were able to ask questions and talk about how it impacted them. Um, uh, we thought that was an important part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like quite a big shift in the... And I think in Australia, the conversations around mental health, you know, the impact on the individual and now moving to talking about um, the family and that's a bit of a shift. We've got um, one of our guests in here, Dr Matt Kang, who's got a question for you, if that's all right, Ben. Yeah, please. Ben, I guess not from a doctor medical perspective but if I was a loved one and I noticed my loved one going through something like you're experiencing and I thought maybe they need more help what can I do to help you know what could have helped for you Ben back in you know 2010 or before then before you diagnosed to get help or get you know more support yeah I think in the in the first instance is to um, make that individual aware of their behaviors um, realizing they can also create a bit of shame and guilt for the individual. Mm. Um, I would speak to the GP, go and speak to your doctor uh, about it, um, or suggest as well that perhaps you you can go and do some counselling together. I mean, Mm. all of those approaches have their own challenges with it. Um, But they are some of the ways that you can try to work together to come together as a 
whole family sort of approach or yeah. you know, loved ones to kind of resolve that. Um, yeah, but I found, but I think also the, I'll call them the carers or the person that's looking after that person who's impacted by PTSD, they also need to look out for support for themselves. Yeah. Because often they'll find their reserves being drained, just trying to manage a situation, or in my wife's case, just trying to shelter the kids from my behaviours, mm. um, which I thought were normal, but on reflection weren't. Yeah. Um, and she needed to find ways to keep her bucket full. Yes. Um, so that she could keep going. And that way, that really provided a lot of support to me. Um, Epi, again, um, thanks for sharing that experience, Ben. Just one little tip for the listeners was that a friend of mine had his daughter with a depressive episode Mm -hmm. and he was very unsure how to support her and just saw her being so upset and um, with symptoms of depression. So he went to a psychologist to, Mm -hmm. um, to get tips, not with her but on his own, and he said it was very helpful. I think that's great advice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Ben, we've spoken, I guess, a little bit about the carer or the person who's um, perhaps a big supporter in um, someone's life. But I know that the kids, you mentioned you having that discussion yeah. with their impact on your kids. Yeah. How, what can we, yeah, what support's available for them? I know the Australian Kookaburra Kids Foundation can help children. Can you tell us a little bit about that organisation? Yeah, the um, Kookaburra Kids Foundation came across my radar and I was really impressed with the way that they were helping kids living in families impacted by mental illness. Yeah. Um, I went across to a couple of the uh, weekend programs they, they put on as well as the activity days where they bring kids as young as eight years old onto these programs. So it allows them a place to have initially fun. Mm. The kids can go and have fun, have a break, but also have a safe environment where they can talk about mental health and the kids can be educated on mental health. Yeah. which in turn then empowers them to talk about what's happening at home. And together, the kids, together with the, um, the leaders, talk about ways in which they can help minimise um, the impact of the mental illness that's in, that they're living with in, at home. Um, and so these Kookaburra Kids Foundation, they run those programs around the country, mm-hmm. as, as well as activity days. They also have an online connect program. That's worth checking out. Fantastic. And how do um, how does someone access these kinds of services? And is there a cost associated with the the weekend programs, for example? Look, I'd just jump onto kookaburrakids.org.au, mm-hmm. um, read through the material there, and see what what suits you and your family. Yeah. Um, and then there's a uh, information uh, portal on there where you can drop the Kookaburra Kids a note, and mm-hmm. they'll get back in touch with you and and, and walk you through it. And yeah. what, what, what's available in your local area and all that sort of stuff. Fantastic. And I guess yeah. um, kind of uh, at the end of these programs, is this a kind of a one-off thing that people um, or kids might go to or is it a bit of a regular group and they can kind of build friendships and relationships with the other people? Yeah. at the? Great, great question. Look, I um, that's part of what blew me away by going on these programs is seeing some of the older kids yeah. that have been going there for a number of years, help bring some of the younger kids who are a bit shy and didn't yeah. want to talk, bring them under their wing. Yeah. And they, it, like, it was like a full circle. They were playing a, a sort of leadership role with those guys or a friendship role. Um, and that was great to see see as well. So they'd, they'd been through quite a number of programs over the years and built up their awareness and confidence to a point where they were help, helping some of the newer kids on the program. So I think, think that was great. Yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah, I think the peer support, I guess, and the normalising and being creating a safe space amongst each other to talk about similar or shared experiences can be so, so valuable. And you mentioned that there's a lot of fun going on as well, yeah. so lots of activities, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a whole range of different activities, uh, from artwork and drawing. Um, mm. to, I was watching the kids do some uh, abseiling and rock climbing, raft building. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I was like, wow, this is, this is great. <laughs> yeah, a very non-threatening environment to talk about mental health and emotions, sounds yeah, like. Yeah, but all in, a, all in a safe place. Yeah. I guess the aim here is that you know, mental illness has an ability to isolate 
and yeah. to break families apart. The aim of these programs and what we're talking about today is to create a whole of family approach to bring people together, families together, so that they feel more connected and working together um, through the recovery and healing process together. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful note to end um, this interview on, Ben. Unless anyone in the studio has any more questions? I'm good, thank you. You're a lovely way to end, Ben. Yeah. Thank you. So that's the um, people can find more information by just Googling the Australian Kookaburra Kids Foundation. Is that correct? Yes, please. Jump on uh, Kookaburra Kids Foundation or kookaburrakids.org.au. Um, also, if you need more information on PTSD, yep. a lot of good stuff on the Beyond Blue website. Fantastic. And should you be should you be struggling if this raise any concerns, then please give Lifeline a call yeah. on 13 11 14. Thank you very much, Ben. What a great way there to end the segment. Lots of support <laughs> <laughs> options available. Well, thanks again, Ben, for joining us on Radiotherapy this morning. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. In the news, I don't think we can avoid not discussing Swifty. Oh, <laughs> I'm so excited. Happy to talk about this as much as you want, Nurse Happy Pen. So at work, I work at a big teaching hospital in Melbourne, and the floor was going crazy. Our whole department was running up and down the corridors. Have you got them? Have you got them? And I was thinking, oh, they're all silly plonkers. What? Why would you want to go and see uh, Taylor Swift, really? What, what's, what's good about her music? Have you, would anybody here have bought Taylor Swift tickets? Um, I can take you aside, Nurse EpiPen, and we can watch videos from the Eras Tour for the next 10 hours and I, or even 10 minutes and I'm sure I can convince you and you will regret not buying tickets yourself. What, have you bought a ticket? I certainly have. Oh. I was very, very lucky enough to secure a ticket. I didn't get it myself. My friend, we had a coordinated, it's very a coordinated kind of um, uh, attack, I guess. Yes. <laughs> on Ticketek. Um, and we, yeah, had to have quite a few devices up. I'm sure a lot of people at the teaching hospital were doing the same thing. Oh, four laptops and banging on the iPhones. iPhones and yeah. Do- Dr. Matt, have you got your secured ticket? No, I actually had to. I wasn't sure what you're talking about initially when you said Swifty. Oh. <laughs> so I'm in that camp. Oh, oh, where have you been? I know. <laughs> yeah, and it's all over the newspapers too. I have seen it, but no, I just didn't make, make the initial click. Oh, you're a Swiftless. Yeah. I'm a Swiftless. <laughs> yes. So that's very interesting. I think. Um, I think we've got time for a really quick quiz. Okay. I don't know if Dr. Nick has this segment, but uh, Dr. Mal and Dr. Kit Kat and myself now do incorporate a quiz. So this is very topical and, and you two will get it straight away. So what has Australia as the first country in the world done to legalise the use of something to treat mental health disorders? So can you repeat the question? Sorry, what, what has Australia as the first country in the world done to legalise the use of something to treat some mental health disorders? What have they done? Yeah, what have we done? <gasps> oh, Rachel got it. Psychedelics. I didn't realise we were the first. Yes. Wow. Uh, yeah. It, it is the first country in the world. Now, that's come straight from the ABC News website. Wow. There you go. Hot off the press. Hot off the press. So do we think we're going to use... Dr Matt, would you have any experience in, or comments about um, psychedelics? Uh, I don't have any experience um, in prescribing, or I guess it's just come in as of tomorrow where um, it's FDA approved. But uh, no, I don't actually. And I think we'll need, people will need a lot of training in it. Yes, watch this space. Okay, next one, which has been ex- again in the news... Um, name the cricketer playing for Australia at the Ashes in England who has hurt his calf. What? Nathan Lyon. Oh, well done. I saw this morning there's some controversy about a catch. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. that was a catch. A dismissed catch or yes. something like that? Oh, there, yes. Was umpire? it Stark? Yes, Stark. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, I'm on top of it. Okay. I'm a 
cricket. I'm married to a cricket tragic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, and last one because this is a, a a funny old one. Uh, can you name have you can you name the first name of Gladys Berejiklian's partner? Current or former? Oh. Cut, well. Sort of what it, she's been, who she's been involved with, with all is of it. This. Robert? No, no, it's a funny old name. You can say. Yeah, so Daryl Maguire was who she was involved with. Yes. And uh, Arthur Morse, uh, Morse is her current partner. <gasps> oh, I was going to do that. Yes. I was going for Daryl, Daryl Maguire. So anyway, that was, oh. look, that's me for the minute. I think that'll <laughs> do me. <laughs> okay, now, well, we've got Dr. Matt in the studio. Um, I think I'll just read through what Dr Matt's uh, qualifications are. So he is a research fellow at the Royal Melbourne Hospital Neuropsychiatry Service and an old age psychiatrist at the Alfred. He, I would like to say he's not that old himself. Um, in completing a PhD in the MIND study, which I'm sure he will talk about, he's been investigating a blood test that can screen for a variety of neurodegenerative conditions like dementia. Outside work, having been largely a a Hobartian growing up, nothing makes him feel more zen or alive rather than being in the chilly outdoors. So I think that's why he's loving Melbourne this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Dr Matt, welcome to the studio. And um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes, that's right. I'm not that old. I'm in my 30s. <laughs> uh, what, what can I tell my, about myself? How did you get into medicine? Why medicine? Why medicine? Oh, I feel like I'm at a medical student in Fibu now. <laughs> and I'm sure hopefully my answer is better than when I was 18 years old. I think back then, to be honest with you, I was pretty naive and I didn't really know. It looked really cool and inspiring to do. Um, as I got into the field more and the studies, I guess what kept me going was meeting the patients and really getting to be in that privileged position where you can talk to someone in their most vulnerable state and help them through their journey and their experience. Um, and I think that's what helped me stick to the books and get through the exams um, throughout my training. So you, you knew you wanted to do psychiatry while you were doing medicine? That's right. I, when I was doing my first, I guess, experience in psychiatric um, settings in my fourth year medical school, um, I could see that really get the the field really gave you time and the training um, to help you understand the person in front of you then and there and so that's what really drew me to the field um, and has kept me going wow that's great and then you've uh, the reason that you're on the show today is because dr rob seltzer who's at the alfred well he's He's sort of a bit all over the place isn't he he hangs out in some of the coffee shops in melbourne um he's He's had a conversation with you recently and been mentoring you, or what's what's his? How has he helped you? So, Doctor Doctor Rob is a uh, is a a teacher, I guess, of psychiatry trainees um, based at Alfred Health. Has I'm sure par- helped pass numerous numerous trainees through their exams, and I guess I was one of those fortunate ones. Um, and during those times, he was also a, a supervisor and a mentor in some of my research activities. Um, leading to the conversation last Friday. All right. So um, do you want to just tell us a little bit about your MIND study? So the MIND study, I shouldn't say it's not my study, it's, I'm a part of the study. Um, the, so it's the Markers in Neuropsychiatric Disorders study, it stands for, and there's lots of mindful puns. Back up, back up, marker in? Markers in Neuropsychiatric Disorders study. For example? For example, uh, it's a, such a broad term you could encompass lots of things in, but dementia, I guess, is one of them... Um, uh, even things like functional neurological disorders, multiple sclerosis, lots of, I guess, as Dr. Samantha Loy, who was on the show a fortnight ago and is, my, is one of my bosses, uh, it's, the, it's the linkage between neurological and psychiatric conditions or symptoms. Um, so it really does in, 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 uh, encompass a broad range of illnesses. Um, it's a study uh, run um, by the Statewide Neuropsychiatry Service at the Royal Melbourne Hospital um, on an NHMRC grant, um, headed up by Professor Dennis Velikoulis and Dr Damodara Ratney, as well as many other collaborators. And it's looking at a new blood test, um, in particular one called Neurofilament Light Chains, or NFL, like the American football. <laughs> um, 
which is a very, very general marker of brain injury. And so using this test, um, we can now measure it in blood and quantify it in blood, which we couldn't do um, before. Um, we can now get a, a really accessible blood test that can measure brain health at the time and hopefully help with the screening process um, for these conditions like dementia. So is it a protein? What, do you, what, do you, what are you looking for? So neurofilament light is a protein that makes up the axons of the nerves or the, yeah, of the nerves, helps with the sort of the cytoskeleton or the structural integrity of those axons. It's also very abundant in your brain, meaning there's lots of them. So any injury to the brain, whether it's a, a trauma, stroke, multiple other things, even degeneration as seen in dementia, it releases these proteins. And everyone actually has them in their, in their brain, released into their spinal fluid and their blood. But with injury, that level is, much, is, in, is increased even more, which is what we can detect now compared to, say, a normal or low level of neurofilament light. So you've got a high level of NFL. What does that mean? So if you have a high level compared to what we'd expect in your age group, what it means is that there is something going on in your brain that's been damaging. Whether it's that you've had a recent stroke, whether it's that there's a more active degeneration like inflammation or an infection, it's that's one of the, I guess, the, the pros and cons of it is it's, it is very generalised, meaning it just tells you the brain is injured, but it doesn't tell you what it's caused by um, or what, which one of the diff many causes it could be due to. So obviously you've done um, something with controls to compare the differences in these levels. So treatment, is there something you could offer these people with high NFLs? It's that's a very broad question, and I guess it's one of the one of the aims of the study is to identify, I guess, maybe even novel treatments. The 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 start of all this, I guess, is that as a psychiatrist or a neurologist, even one of the most common questions you get is: Is this person's problems or symptoms related to their mental illness or a neurological disorder or something else in between? And it's actually very very hard to answer that in the literature existing now. Existing now we are estimating about 20 to 30% of people who present to a memory clinic or a tertiary service with neuropsychiatric symptoms are initially given the wrong diagnosis. And three and a half years or four and a half years later, they are finally given their correct diagnosis and can access their appropriate treatment. And so we're hoping that this blood test can help screen that process earlier and give more information to the patients, the caregivers and the doctors and the clinicians involved to be able to answer that question earlier on and direct people to more appropriate, precise care. Wow. <laughs> Every time I learn more and more about dementia um, and, I guess, the brain and, I guess, the psychiatric side of that and the neuropsych side of that, it's just so complicated and extensive. And I might embarrass myself, but two weeks ago, what was the protein nurse EpiPen that our guests were talking about, particularly perhaps in Alzheimer's disease. Amyloid or tau, maybe? Maybe, something like that. So this is different from NFL or is does then, I guess, NFL you said is very general and is amyloid a little bit more specific to the specific types of dementia? Or? Those two proteins you're mentioning there, related with Alzheimer's disease, um, is a pathological protein. It's a marker okay. of that disease. NFL is present in everyone. It's a okay. normal protein that's present in our bodies. It's just an increased level that's, um, that we, we expect to see in people with neurodegenerative conditions. Sure. So you mentioned the screening word. So Dr. Matt, with my epidemiology hat on, um, screening means that you're going to be looking at a group of people that might be able to be diagnosed with some kind of disease and does it, is it a sensitive test? So it will pick up as many cases that are true cases. What's, what do you feel about that? That's, I guess, the precise question we have with the MIND study is, can this blood test, if it's available, help or be better as a screening test than what's, what's already available now? So at the moment, what we have to do now, if, you, if we're concerned about, say, if you have some memory problems, maybe some low mood, and they're not sure if it's depression or maybe some sort of form of dementia, you typically get a referral from a GP to see a neurologist, a geriatrician or a psychiatrist or a memory clinic. 
Um, if it's a more comprehensive assessment, you have a neuropsychologist assessment, which can go for you know a couple of hours doing a thinking and memory test. You need brain scans on top, like MRI and so forth. And sometimes you don't even get the right answer at the start. And so whether the test is sensitive enough to deter that or not isn't clear yet. And I guess that's what we're hoping to find in this study. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are hopeful. And cost? Do you have a, an understanding of the cost? The the main problem with the cost is that the machine that can do this ultra-sensitive technology isn't widely, widely available in Australia. And so often we get our shipped internationally to our collaborators to have them um, process and so forth. But they're within a couple of hundred dollars, which is you know cheaper than a brain scan or MRI scan or something like that. Yeah. You mentioned there's a lot of people who get um, misdiagnosed. So what perhaps do they get diagnosed with instead of you know getting an accurate diagnosis? In psychiatry training, we talk about pseudo-dementias, things that look like uh, dementias. So yeah. depression is very common. Obstructive sleep apnea is another one. Anxiety disorders. Many other sort of mimickers of dementia that are actually reversible and aren't true dementia. Yeah. So um, we've got a question from a listener. Um, could somebody with long COVID have high NFLs? That's a really interesting area, I guess it's which is only just emer- which is emerging as we're speaking right now. I'm not across the literature on NFL in long COVID yet, but NFL could play a role in, I guess, detecting neuronal injury if there is long COVID um, in the brain that's been um, sort of reported in the, the research already. Mm-hmm. So you have to tune in to our show yeah. in two weeks because we've got an expert speaking about long COVID. Very interesting. Um, Matt, I was doing a little bit of research on you when I knew you were coming on the show and doing my preparation. And I saw, and I hope this is right and it's not someone else who shares your name with this publication, but talking about caregiver burden in young dementia. Is that you? Yes, that is okay. me. <laughs> you. Oh, excellent. That could have been awkward. Um, can you tell, we did touch on um, last fortnight a, a little bit about young dementia, but not so much the caregiver burden. Is this um, a component of the MIND study or is this other research that you've been doing yeah, independently or with a different group? Or? Uh, it's a part of the research that's done at the Royal Melbourne Neuropsychiatry Service. I guess we are collecting data about caregiver burden as part of the MIND study as, an exp- as, as patients, as sorry, participants and their caregivers um, are going through that sort of journey and we call yeah. that the diagnostic odyssey of receiving their correct <laughs> journey, which I'm sure Sam talked about a fortnight ago. We, and so, yes, we are collecting some information and data about burden on carers. It's It's... I guess I mean, it sort of relates to what Ben was talking mm. about with PTSD. These conditions aren't, don't just affect the individual. It affects everyone around them and has a ripple effect. And so I think it's important, um, as you've correctly high- highlighted, to not forget about, to not get sort of tunnel vision into the one participant, but think about the system around them. And so what, yeah, what is the burden or the, what is the impact on the system around them that young, or young dementia or even just... Dementia. So younger onset dementia is more is unique to dementia in that uh, it affects them. It affects individuals when they're younger, and it's often when they're at their sort of maximal income mm. um, potential, when they have uh, younger children who mm. need care, and so the the needs of those particip- of those patients and their caregivers are more unique. Things like childcare would be more valuable than thinking about. Um, uh, outings or being being driven around. Mm. Often they're more physically able to, um, and that can be um, that can be challenging for carers because maybe they forget where they are, but they can actually walk quite far or get or get 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 well, quite yeah. far, um, which can be problematic too. Um, and I guess what kind of um, support or, what, or perhaps what did you find in that study first of all, and what support can we offer carers? It's the Oh, it's the million-dollar question at the moment because <laughs> it's uh, young on, young onset dementia um, patients or people with young onset dementia rather, and their caregivers are stuck in this odd place where they're not if they're not older if they're not older than sixty five to be in the aged care system, then they're in, they're in the NDI system. The NDI system though isn't that familiar with dementia and old age uh, sorry aged care related issues, so the caregivers are often you know stuck in between these systems trying to navigate um, between them and so accessing help for them can be quite challenging. I guess 
highlighted though is that the the caregivers of old pe- of people with young onset dementia can access NDIS and can access hopefully help for themselves as well. Um, but it can be quite challenging and something I think that needs to be addressed. And when you talk about help, is that um, psychological support or I imagine, I guess, the um, the stress that would be associated with someone you mentioned who has quite quite mobile and can walk quite far away? Or is there any kind of like home support or occupational therapy? I'm not sure if that's what kind of goes into the supports available. I guess the support that, that they need is has to be quite individual. So people sure. who... People, as I mentioned before, people with younger ones of dementia might have little children. So even childcare might be, you know, great support for them. Uh, maybe they need help with groceries or cleaning around the house. That could also be, of, you know, used so that they can, that frees up their time to do other things. Beyond that, though, is more individual supports that they might need to access, like care, um, their own psychological support or just even counselling. The other part is uh, accessing communities that may um, help connect people with caregivers of people with young onset dementia so that they can share their experience Mm. and sort of learn through that lived experience as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's the lived experience and the um, shared experience I think is really, really valuable. And so is it that um, often when you are – so do you see patients in a one-on-one – What's your interaction with patients? At the moment, I'm, I've, I've just finished training this last year, this year. I've just got my letters this year, so I'm taking a little Ooh, bit of congratulations. a... Congratulations. Thank you. I'm taking a little bit of a break from my clinical training to focus on my PhD, which I've just started this year. Um, so does so, that make you a doctor, a doctor? Doctor, doctor. <laughs> well, I've got to get to the end first, as my <laughs> supervisor keeps telling me. Um, but yes, that's... But, uh, so not at the moment. I don't see patients clinically, um, but I'll be seeing some of these participants, I guess, as participants of research. Sure. Yep. And clinical... So clinical practice at the Royal Melbourne with Samantha and the team? I work at the service, but no clinical practice at Okay. The and at the Alfred? At the Alfred, I'm a, a casual psychiatrist. Casual? Mm. That's a relaxed one. Mm. Yeah. Um, It's just fascinating the developments that we're seeing in, um, I guess, dementia and care. What I think this was a question Rob asked last um, fortnight, which I really quite liked, but what are you most looking forward to in terms of research and the most exciting development in this kind of space of it? I think what I'm really excited by is that we can we we are getting closer to the stage where we can give we we can better understand the interactions between the mind and the brain. It's something that we've always delineated or try to separate out together, but I think these tests which make I guess reading the brain much more accessible to us mm. provide us with much more information about what's happening with the person in front of you because it's very hard to do that from brain scans or blood tests or you know talking to you alone. I think it's the integration of all these things which will really help link the brain and the mind together. Beautiful. I think that's yeah. a lovely summary. Yeah, that's really exciting area of research. So so good that so many people are working in this space. Yeah, yeah, very, very important. Mental space. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we've had some um, fantastic guests. We started with Dr Tony Pacus, a BDD therapist. Check out some information on readymind.com.au um, or her own Instagram profile at the BDD therapist. We also heard from Ben Farinazzo, who told us a little bit about PTSD and the Australian Kookaburra Kids Foundation. If you just type into Google Australian Kookaburra Kids, you can find some more information there. Um, And we'd like to thank Dr. Matt Kang for joining us in this studio, talking about dementia and research into, I guess, blood tests and the exciting um, field that it is coming to be. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.